have not historically been a fan of virtual reality, but I just love this article and this discussion this week. In the article we are looking at, the authors explore the use of virtual reality systems that are built specifically for rehab versus general use commercially available VR systems like the Nintendo Wii and Microsoft Connect. And my favorite part about the research is that they really focus on what are the active ingredients that make virtual reality-based rehab effective. And then they put forth these principles of neuro rehab that underlies successful rehab. In their study, they are looking specifically at upper extremity motor recovery after stroke. So this whole discussion just feels so relevant to our work as occupational therapists. After we go through this research article, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Christopher Gaskins. He is currently an MS, OTRL, and CSRS, and he is a PhD candidate in neuroscience and cognitive science. And he will be joining us to look at this research together and talk about what this all means for your OT practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT-related journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of virtual reality, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may count as continuing education for you. To earn CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. And after listening to this episode, you can log in to take a five-question test and we'll generate a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the principles in neuro rehab that undergird the delivery of virtual reality-based rehabilitation. And our second learning objective is you will be able to recognize which outcomes are most likely to be impacted by virtual reality-based stroke rehab per the research. So let's begin by turning to our journal article, and then we will welcome Christopher to the podcast. So the article we are looking at today is called The Effect of Specific Over Nonspecific VR-Based Rehabilitation on Post-Stroke Motor Recovery, a Systematic Meta-Analysis. It comes to us from the Journal of Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair. It was published in 2019, and it is ranked 44th on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. So the article begins with just this introduction to why we need tech like this in the first place. And it is a story that is very familiar to listeners of the OT Potential podcast because this comes up across diagnoses. But the authors share that we have more and more stroke survivors than ever, given the improved treatments available during the acute phase of care. And this is obviously fantastic news that more people are surviving stroke. But the reality is that this increased survival rate also means increased needs for rehabilitation. And new rehab technologies are emerging to help us meet these increased needs. 
These technologies have the potential to help us gather massive and detailed data. And the more data we have, hypothetically, the better we can refine our care and continue to deliver more successful treatment approaches in the future. And virtual reality is one such technology that is trying to meet this need. So where does the research stand on virtual reality for stroke rehab? They share that despite two decades of VR being used in stroke rehab, it is still unclear whether its use actually improves the functional recovery of the upper limb. This is not from a lack of research. In fact, the article references multiple systematic reviews and meta-analyses, but the results thus far have just been contradictory or inconclusive at best. The authors discuss why this VR-based rehab evidence has been inconclusive so far. One theory is simply that the studies that have been done have just been too small or that the patient population has been too varied. But the authors really honed in on two more possibilities. One, they wondered if the VR systems that were included in the studies were too varied. And second, they put forth that maybe a clear understanding of the active ingredients of VR have not been made clear. In other words, they're asking what actually makes VR rehab work? And can we study the VR system that have these ingredients to get clear results in our research? And so these considerations are what leads us to this study. The author's intent of this research was to assess whether rehab-specific virtual reality systems yielded different outcomes from non-specific virtual reality systems. Their hypothesis was that virtual reality systems that were built specifically for rehab would outperform non-specific ones. Because hypothetically, VR designed for rehab should have the principles of neurorehab embedded in it. So what were their methods for exploring this question? The authors conducted a meta-analysis following the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analyses, otherwise known as PRISMA. Randomized controlled trials were included if they involved training of the upper extremity after stroke, specifically when VR-based rehab was compared with conventional therapy like OTRPT. To classify the impact of VR on upper extremity function, the following outcome measures were considered for inclusion in their meta-analysis. At the body function level, they included the Fugelmeyer, the Modify-Ashworth scale, the Motricity Index, and the Stroke Impact Scale. For activity level assessments, they looked at the Action Research Arm Test, the Barthel Index, the Box and Block Test, and the Functional Independence Measure, and the Wolf Motor Function Test. As part of their study, they were also looking to identify the neuro-rehab principles that were involved in rehab-based virtual reality systems. So the authors reviewed the literature on the principles of motor learning and recovery in neuro-rehab, and they identified 11 principles that seemed to enhance neuroplasticity and motor recovery. I wish they had gone into a little more detail on how they arrived at these 11 principles, but I can tell you these 11 principles were... One, mass practice. Two, dosage defined as more than five hours per week. Three, structured practice. Four, task-specific practice. Five, variable practice. Six, multi-sensory stimulation. Seven, increasing difficulty. Eight, explicit feedback. Nine, 
implicit feedback, 10, avatar representation, and 11, promoting use of the affected limb. So with these principles identified, the authors reviewed the randomized control trials to see how many of the principles were present in the rehab programs that were being studied. So that's the setup and what were their results. The authors found 30 articles published between 2002 and 2018 that were included in this review. 22 of the randomized controlled trials used VR systems that were specific to rehab. The only one that was specifically mentioned was the IREX systems. And then there were eight randomized controlled trials that used non-specific VR systems. These included the Nintendo Wii, which has been discontinued, the Microsoft Xbox Connect, which has been discontinued, and the Sony PlayStation iToy, which has also been discontinued, but Sony does continue to invest in VR. So when the results from these studies were grouped for their meta-analysis, here is what they found. They found that VR systems built specifically for rehab showed a significant impact at both the body function and the activity level that was superior to conventional OT and PT. However, the studies that use VR systems that were not specifically built for rehab showed no significant effect on body function nor activity. When they were looking at the presence of the identified neurorehab principles, the systems that were not built for rehab tended to incorporate three principles. They had variable practice, they helped promote the use of the affected limb, and they had that higher dosage. When they looked at the studies that had VR systems specific to rehab, they had twice as many neurorehab principles incorporated into them. There tended to be six overall, one variable practice, two promoting use of the effective limb, three dosage, four implicit feedback, five increased difficulty, and six task-specific practice. In their discussion, the authors share that their results demonstrate that VR systems built specifically for rehab show a higher impact on recovery, specifically at the body function and the activity level. The authors believe that the overall positive effect of these systems is due to the incorporation of multiple principles of neurorecovery, and it just does not seem sufficient to have one or two principles present. So their conclusion is that this study, along with others, have shown that tailor-made VR systems may be a valid tool for motor recovery post-stroke. Further studies should not focus on whether VR should be used or not. Instead, it should investigate which technologies, VR among them, are most appropriate to facilitate the implementation of these really important principles of neurorehab. So there is a lot to unpack in there, and I'm so thankful to have our guest, Christopher Gaskins, joining us to discuss this research and what it means for OT. Christopher has 10 years of experience working as an occupational therapist. He developed a passion for neurorehabilitation while working at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. During this time, he also co-founded Go Therapy, a nonprofit dedicated to increasing rehabilitation access in West Africa. He spearheaded Go Therapy's efforts to develop the Stroke Community Reintegration Program in Ghana. 
Christopher noticed there was a shortage of neurorehabilitation specialists despite neurological conditions such as stroke and traumatic brain injury being the leading causes of long-term disability. In 2019, he created NeuroSuite, a mobile neurorehabilitation outpatient company to address this problem. Christopher earned his bachelor's of science in exercise science from the University of South Carolina in 2007 and his master's of science in occupational therapy from Howard University in 2010. He is the CEO of NeuroSuite, and he is also a neuroscience and cognitive science PhD candidate at the University of Maryland and an adjunct OT professor at Howard University. So without further ado, I will patch Christopher into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. It's great to have you. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I have just been on a journey this week thinking about virtual reality. I kind of started as a curmudgeon because I think of the technologies, it's one of my least favorites because I associate it with getting dizzy. But the more I learn, I'm like, I think this is going to be part of the mix of the rehab tech of the future. And I'm just excited to talk with you about it today. But before we get there, I want to learn a little bit more about you and start with how you first found OT. Yeah, sure, sure. So again, thanks for having me. Definitely excited for the conversation today. Um, I found out about OT during an internship during my senior year at the University of South Carolina, where I did an internship. And my first week there, I worked with a young lady that had a pretty bad spinal fracture. And just after working and talking with her, you know, I asked her, what does she really want to do? What are your goals? And her thing that was so important to her was that she wanted to be able to return to a role of being a mother and, you know, be able to prepare meals for her children, take her children to school. And after that, honestly, that was it. I was like, okay, this is pretty self-gratifying or very uh, empowering profession where, you know, we can definitely find value in helping people. So I said, I think this is what I want to do. I feel good doing it and I like helping other people. So honestly, that was it. So I got my OT degree from Howard University then from there, I've had a great opportunity to work at various hospitals and home health and nursing homes and outpatient facilities. And yeah, love being an OT. Yeah, I love how you remember that first person that you interacted with. I think a lot of us are drawn to rehab or we have that first patient that we see and that story sticks with us. And it is a gratifying profession. I don't think we talk about that enough on the podcast. Like, the privilege of being with people on their journey is, yeah, just very gratifying. Yeah, definitely. So you went to Howard, you got your OT degree. What drew you, two-part question, both into neuro, and then how did you get interested in the tech part of neuro rehab? Yeah, sure. So during that internship, it actually turned into a job where I was working as a rehab tech and kind of back in those days, they used the rehab techs almost as therapists, which probably wasn't the most ethical thing. But <laughs> yeah. I, they, a lot of times, the physical and occupational therapists would have me work with stroke survivors. And I loved working with them. And I actually would be able to get them engaged in their therapy. And that's where my love for neuro rehab really began. And um, you know, once I started working as an OT, I was able to kind of pour into that love by working in inpatient TBI unit as well as outpatient neuro rehab unit. And it was enough to say, okay, I think, Chris, you need to know more if you want to better help these individuals. So I had this wild idea to go back and get my PhD in neuroscience and cognitive science. So, and I started in 2017 at the University of Maryland. So fast forward now, 
And yeah, I'm currently writing my dissertation to get my neuroscience and conscious science PhD. And really during that time, I really fell in love with tech. Because one, I've always kind of liked fidgeting with gadgets and, you know, playing around like without my phone. But then, yeah, working with my various clients, I saw the power in it. Been working with like robotics or working with these computerized, you know, therapeutic gaming systems. And or even just helping somebody learn how to operate or use their calendar in their phone. So, yeah, that's kind of where my love for tech and health tech started. In your experience, have you found that the patients you work with are really drawn to these, to the tech options? Do you see that? And the research talks about the motivation that it brings and the participation. Is that something you were seeing? Or do you think it was more you're like observing that interest in yourself that grew your interest in tech? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Honestly, uh, with the population that I worked with, a lot of them were a little bit older. You know, they didn't really grow up, you know, playing the Ataris or the, you know, the Super Nintendos or, you know, even using a, a phone or smartphone that much. So actually, they were a little bit hesitant. I think what drew me to it is that I saw there was a gap, particularly with the home exercise programs, and that there's no way that we were tracking if people were really doing their homework or not. And so I saw tech to be like a useful device to be able to essentially track if people are doing their homework and also a way to keep them engaged and, you know, just a way to make them feel like overall interested in their actual kind of homework and their their therapy and their kind of obligation to get better themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, when you're talking about these tech solutions, they're going to intertwine so much, I think, in the future with like, maybe you're wearing a wearable that's tracking how much you're using your effective side and you're doing a VR thing and you're communicating with your therapist through some kind of device. Like I can see how they'll all kind of mesh together for to get that kind of experience you were talking about, like that tracking in the home. There's so many levels and ways to do that. There is, yeah. And I've learned also that simplicity is key. <laughs> Yeah, I yes. definitely don't want to overwhelm uh, anyone with their with the tech options, but want to find something that is, you know, something that is manageable to teach and educate them on how to use and something that they can readily see the benefit. Again, whether it's learning to use their iPad so that they can check out their patient portal, or whether it's helping them complete their homework using like an online survey as opposed to writing it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that simplicity, that actually feels like the big challenge in this area where there is so much you can do, but what's going to be the simplest version of that that will keep patients engaged? Yeah. But thinking about virtual reality specifically, I wanted to start with just defining virtual reality. I know I read the article and I was like, oh, I don't really think of the Wii as virtual reality anymore. Like I tend to think of it as just a fully immersive or semi-immersive technology, but how do you define virtual reality? Yeah, I've always thought of virtual reality as essentially like a kind of like a computer generated like 3D image that we're engaging and interacting with that feels very realistic. Now, this can be done, you know, in what we call like a non-immersive environment or non-immersive environment, essentially where we, you know, we might be just be looking at a screen. We might not have like a headset on. Like exactly. the Wii. Yeah. Or it could be like a fully immersive environment in which we're using like a headset or you know, like VR glasses or, or something of, of that nature. And then also, I think VR can also have extensions to it in which you might utilize like a robotic exoskeleton 
or you might utilize like a wristband that might vibrate when you grab a certain item to kind of increase this concept that we call embodiment. And embodiment is essentially this concept where essentially you feel like you are the avatar. You feel like you are fully immersed in the environment and you're one with it. And one way to help that is by kind of like imposing, you know, sensory stimulation, whether that be through vibration or you name it. So, yeah, I think VR is is multi-layered. I don't think it's fully immersive. I think it can be non-immersive mm-hmm. or it can't progress to being like a fully immersive environment. Yeah. What differentiates VR from augmented reality? Yeah, so the way I view VR, again, is fully being enveloped or, or fully using like this 3D image and you've, you're essentially interacting in a realistic way with this 3D image. Whereas with AR, it essentially uses a real-world environment and it superimposes objects onto that. So let's say that you're out in the park and then an AR uh, utility would be that maybe now... AR is producing this kickball in front of you in this park. Mm-hmm. It's like if you kick your leg, then, you know, the kickball kind of goes 20 feet, you know, in the actual part that you're standing in. So that's kind of how I different, differentiate the two. And I think both are very useful, can be very useful for rehab. Yeah. Is AR, is a leading technology in that going to be like Google Glasses or something like, I have more troubles envisioning the future of AR and what that looks like. Really? Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know in the context of rehab, I know it's like more work is put in the VR realm, um, but I think it comes with challenges because it's hard to create this 3D environment and again, to really kind of facilitate mm-hmm. this idea of embodiment while also kind of coping with this idea that some people might have motion sickness and so on and so yeah. forth. Whereas to me, like from like a software development standpoint, I would think like AR would be maybe easier Mm -hmm. to construct because again you're just superimposing items onto that real world environment yeah so i would think that ar actually be like a little bit more popular in rehab why hasn't it been so far i definitely struggle with motion sickness like that is for sure my like i don't want to be fully immersed because i'm going to get motion sick and if i had a stroke on top of my current motion sickness then i definitely don't want to be in a vr environment yeah, exactly. I, I really don't quite know. I thought we were on our way. Like, I know the Pokemon Go craze uh, was that yeah. back, like in was it around 2016, 2017. I remember even doing like kind of like a project with my student. I was training one of my uh, patients. And yeah, we did like a whole Pokemon Go AR <laughs> activity for rehab to work on visual scanning and visual attention and, you know, uh, executive functioning. But honestly, I'm not I'm not quite sure. I don't quite know that answer. But I would be interested in seeing AR being used more just because, one, I think it might be less technologically challenging to implement. And I think there's a benefit of having the individual continue to be immersed in their real-world environment but superimposing, you know, various functional items in that environment. Yeah, and I even think that, again, pairing that with, again, this idea of, like, what we call haptic feedback, what I mentioned earlier, this vibration sense when you grab a cup or this vibration when you wipe this countertop down. Uh, I think that can be really, really helpful in just helping people kind of get more into the, the AR environment. So I, would, I wouldn't mind seeing that. Hopefully more research will be done on AR. Yeah, I think we we almost like violated the rule of simplicity already where it feels like rehab tech went all in into the VR world and... Uh, forgot to think about the simpler version, the AR world, and now it's like a huge missing 
yeah. piece. Would you agree? Yeah. Like when I Google AR rehab, there's literally nothing out there. Or am I missing it? Or is it there and it's not <laughs> searchable? I haven't seen, okay. No, yeah, I haven't seen. I haven't seen too much. Not that specific for rehab. Yeah, we have not seen too much. Okay. I'm going to call up Google Glasses and tell them to <laughs> hire you to make this happen. I would like that. <laughs> I would like that a lot. Oh, okay. So I want to, I'm like already tempted to veer away from VR, but staying focused on this article, I was curious to hear your initial impressions of it. What came to mind as you were reading it? I was really impressed by the article. I really liked the idea that they use these principles of motor learning and recovery to kind of somewhat quantify like the value that these different systems give. I thought it was very interesting that when comparing the Pacific virtual reality to the non-Pacific virtual reality systems, they found that with these Pacific virtual reality systems, they had a lot more of these principles of, of motor recovery, and that might possibly indicate why there were better outcomes using, using these devices. So I was really, really impressed with that. I also like the fact that they did provide like operational definition like a VR because even just without talk, we were explaining it, you know, in various different ways. Yeah, so I thought that was that was really good. So I was really impressed again by the principles that they that they utilize. Yeah, that was my when I saw it come up on my list, I was like, oh, I'm kind of excited to talk about VR, but it's not my favorite technology. But once I read it, I loved how they layered those principles into there. And I think it's useful both like in guiding the VR that we create. But also if you're a therapist and you're like, I only, my patient loves the Oculus Rift and you could hypothetically still use that and be, it's your onus as a therapist to bring these principles then. Like it's not built in for you as well, but as a therapist, you could bring that. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think it is important to really be able to utilize these principles to really get the maximum return on time and investment into these devices. But also, I mean, I do think that these non-Pacific VR devices, I mean, I think they do still have a place. You know, I know these devices, they use a lot of, you know, variable practice and, you know, they vary like the dosage, which can be very useful. Then also, I think just from just the overall engagement piece, and then also a possible like aerobic effect. Like, you know, these tasks, they might not be very specific to, you know, maybe improving shoulder flexion or specific to improving wrist flexion or extension or whatever it may be, but the general movement is, you know, very consistent. And I think it does show that people tend to still move a lot, even using these devices. So I think there's there's places for both. Yeah, I see the, yeah, how they can just both be used to hit these principles that they mentioned on. I wanted to ask if you, they kind of generated their own list of principles. I was kind of surprised they didn't pull a list from somewhere like a pre-existing list. They went through the work of like generating their own. Did you agree with the motor learning principles they came up with? I did. Um, yeah, several of these are from the principles of neuroplasticity, like the dosage and the task-specific practice and, you know, the mass practice. And then like the explicit feedback and implicit feedback, you know, those more so in the kinesiology realm, those are referred to like as the knowledge of results. So essentially the knowledge of, you know, how you did on the overall task and then the knowledge of your performance. So essentially, you know, how did you do actually perform the task? So, you know, those are, those are very important. And then obviously when we think about 
essentially like the stages like of, of motor learning, you know, how you kind of progress from this cognitive state when we're really engaging, we're really focused on trying to learn how to do a task, but then we kind of progress to like this more associative state. And then finally, we kind of progress to this more autonomous, automatic state where we're just, we're just kind of doing things automatically. Yeah, I think the mass practice really speaks to that as well as the variable practice. Now, the only thing I would say about the articles that were in this review were that I think out of all these 11 different principles, I think mass practice or what we call block practice was like the least least principle that was in these various studies. And But variable practice was used a lot. And I know that variable practice is very important for you to, you know, generalize your skill set to different environments or different contexts. However, again, thinking about this stages of, of learning, you have to be able to acquire, you know, the motor skill first before you can practice it across these different yeah. contexts. And I think mass practice or block practice, just this repetition of doing this over and over, it might not be exciting, but over and yes. over yep. and over again, I think that has a lot of value that I think is overlooked. And I think it's very beneficial to help somebody just learn that basic motor pattern so that they can progress from this more cognitive state to, again, this more autonomous state. So, you know, again, I know that in this article with the SVR systems, you know, it was they found mainly six principles that seemed to reoccur, and variable practice was one of them, but block practice was not utilized at all. Or, well, excuse me, very little. Yeah. Very low percentage. I would like to see, I would like to see that done, done more to really help somebody grasp these different motor patterns and movements that they're trying to do before you go generalizing across these different contexts. Yeah, yeah, that definitely speaks to the potential benefit of the rehab-specific VR, because of course on the Oculus Rift, they don't build in mass practice because it's monotonous and it's an entertainment device. Um, yeah, yeah, it's monotonous and yeah, some people say it's boring, but then I will say, well, what can we do to make it a little bit more exciting? So how can we integrate more of that explicit feedback or implicit feedback so that the individual can know how they're performing, you know, as they do these reps over and over. Yeah. Or how can we build in incentives? You know, whatever that looks like. How can we build in these incentives to keep the motivation going? But yeah, I think that mass practice is extremely important. And yeah, I don't know if we're addressing that enough within this VR context. So that's one thing I would like to see. I want to wear like AR glasses where I reach for something and if I get it, it claps for me or something like some yeah. like feel good yeah, like a little confetti <laughs> yeah yeah totally. I want the confetti yeah, some, yeah. <laughs> even like a satisfying sound is I don't know I associate that with like my text message like ooh, that's so satisfying like yeah I don't think it needs to be someone doesn't need to bake you a cake or anything it can just be yeah. something yeah it could even be a basic progress bar so you know if you're you know, if you initially start doing a task, you're going to have a lot of variation in your movement. You know, and it might not be very smooth, but maybe as you progress towards this task and you progress towards automaticity and you doing things more smoothly, I mean, this progress bar goes from zero to 100. And once it turns green, then maybe that's when we go to more of the variable practice, just to make sure that we've acquired that skill first. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. There was one principle that stood out to me where I was like, I don't agree with that. But I think you alluded to why it fits in there. And in the article, they called it avatar representation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what is that? But when you said 
Would you say that's the same as embodiment that they're talking there? And I saw the word embodiment in the other VR articles. What does that mean? I think I have a guess, but what, or I guess first, is it the same thing? And then I want to hear about embodiment because that feels important. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same thing. I mean, I could definitely see the feeling of embodiment and feeling of being immersive being necessary to have avatar representation. So I guess maybe one facilitates the other. I mean, I guess I can see as. But again, embodiment is essentially, again, this idea of feeling like this is you, like this is your own. So if you're seeing your hand in the virtual environment, so you can really fight this hand is your own. Or if you see in this avatar, you really feel like this is really you. The movements that you make are really producing itself in that VR environment. Again, that can really help towards the person really identifying with the image in the VR setting and then could just really improve or possibly increase their like engagement. And also, I think the viewpoint is important. So the first-person view might even have benefit to helping somebody feel more immersed or embodied. I don't know if you ever heard of the, like, the rubber hand illusion. Are you familiar with that? No, uh-uh. Since it's like an experiment where you have your actual hand out of view, and then in front of you is a hand that looks very similar to yours. And then somebody might, you know, engage in light touch to your actual hand. At the same time, they're engaging in light touch of that simulated hand looks like yours. To kind of increase that embodiment or helping that brain kind of connect to like, oh, this simulated hand now looks like mine. Mm. And I've seen like videos where they've kind of gone through this process and then all of a sudden they might just, you know, hit that simulated hand or hit that artificial hand and actually scares the individual because they have now perceived that that artificial hand is theirs. So I just think that's a good example like of embodiment. That person was actually able to embody that artificial hand and see it as their own. And I think that with VR technology, I think that is something that is often strived for to really have this full embodiment to kind of improve like the overall like user experience. Mm-hmm. Is there something where like say my hand is impaired, but in my avatar, it's not as impaired? Or like I see it like represented in more of like a, I don't know, healthy representation of a hand. Is there like a mental trick or, I don't know, like does that impact how you think about and use your hand? If yeah. You see, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Agree with that? Okay. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but if I had to take an educated you know position, I, I would think so. I would kind of even liken it to like what we go through like when we're using mirror therapy. That's what I was just thinking about. Yeah, activation of those mirror neurons. And, you know, we can actually activate those parts of the brain that were engaged in, you know, using the actual hand by looking at the hand functioning in the VR environment. Um, I mm-hmm. haven't seen any research done on that, but just from my prior knowledge, I would think that that would have been a Yeah. Doesn't that seem like the, like at first I was like disregarding that principle, but now as I think about it, I'm like, that could be the main driver of success in VR is feeling embodied with this other hand, your VR hand. Oh, yeah. It has huge implications. Yeah. Even thinking of somebody that is, um, you know, completely flaccid or even paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Just think of the benefits that, that would have. Yeah. Um, yeah. VR is important. It has implications. Yeah, that, does, yeah that's, <laughs> that alone, like, sways me to the the importance of this and the value of it. Yeah, and thinking of it as like an advanced mirror therapy. Is that how people are thinking about it right now? 
I'm not sure. I don't know. I know that's how I think about it as a clinician and mm-hmm. a researcher. But I know, again, with embodiment, there's a lot of work being done more so in the what we call the haptic feedback. So, again, inputting this, this vibrational input to kind of coincide with the action in the VR environment. So, again, if we're in the VR environment, in a first-person view, and we see our hand in the VR environment, and we grab a cup in the VR environment, if we have that vibratory feedback, you know, around the hand or around the the wrist or digit flexor muscles to coincide with us actually grabbing that cup in the VR environment. I know a lot of research has been done with that concept and that has been shown to improve embodiment. Yeah. Are there commercially available devices that give that haptic feedback like that? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I can't think of any. Yeah, I can't speak definitely, but not within the VR AR realm. I this is kind know. of getting to like so. the brain computer interface that I talked about with Lauren Souders about a long time ago, that the Ipsy hand, I think it was called. Is that a similar concept to what you're talking about? Where the Ipsy hand might be a little bit different, at least from my knowledge, because it's using that, at least my limited understanding is using or it's analyzing essentially brain activity. You know, when somebody's trying to commit to do like an action. And then it kind of uses that brain activity to kind of predict what the individual wants to do. And then something on your hand does it. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Whereas, Sorry, Lauren Souders, if you're listening to this and <laughs> you don't like our description. But that's how I understand it. Hopefully I'm describing it with due respect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but when I'm thinking about, you know, this, this vibrational effect, you know, within like a VR or even like an AR viewpoint, the main goal there would just be to just help, I guess, with the realism of, Mm -hmm. you know, that environment by introducing that sensory feedback. Yeah, I can see that being really powerful. And thinking about, or now I'm layering it back to augmented reality too, where I could see some kind of haptic feedback also being really valuable in that to like let you know you met a goal or something. Yes, yeah. That feels like an achievable technology. Too. Yeah, I like where AR or AR and VR is going, but I've always kind of imagined it being integrated with an external device. So actually, it being integrated with like an exoskeleton, a hand mm-hmm. exoskeleton, or something of that nature. So again, really kind of like improve this, you know, representation like of the limb and the VR experience. That's kind of what I've always kind of envisioned. Yeah, I liked where you were going with just the vibration alone, though. I'm like, that feels like what if I was just wearing a glove and it vibrated, and yeah. that feels. Again, this feels like we've focused our energies on really complex things, and I wish there was more low-level use of these technologies that were more accessible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very. That's definitely true. I know. Like in this particular study, just because they didn't want to confound the results, they particularly did not look at any VR systems that use exoskeleton because mm-hmm. then you wouldn't be sure, you know, where actual main effect is coming from? Is it coming from the VR or the exoskeleton? So they did not include those studies for clarity. But yeah, that's something I'd definitely be interested in seeing more of. Yeah, yeah. So there's so many things we could talk about. I wanted to focus in on thinking about a therapist who's in an outpatient setting. What do you see the role for non-specific VR tech currently? Like, what are things people could be doing 
today and maybe projecting ahead to like the near future. What are things we could be doing with like the Oculus Rift, like the non-specific? For non-specific, you know, as I think of it as a therapist, I think my primary goal would be to just increase overall and more general motor activity and then also aerobic activity. You know, whether that's in the VR environment, you, I know like the week they had like, you know, like you're running for like the Olympics or you're bowling or yep. boxing even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to do boxing with the week with my patients. Yeah. Like, I would be out of breath. Like I would be yeah. tired. <laughs> I love the week. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that has utility. That aerobic activity can be very influential, like in stimulating, you know, neuroplasticity. I think a lot of research has really been able to show that, you know, aerobic activity for even 20 to 30 minutes can actually help, you know, produce a lot of these, you know, various proteins and things within the, the body can actually help facilitate, you know, improve, you know, nervous system repair and even faster system repair, blood vessel growth, so on and so forth, connection between neurons. So that's kind of where I see the, the benefit of the non-Pacific VR. I would just think about just get your body moving. Just get your body moving and then let's just keep you engaged and let's reap these benefits of you just moving your body. You know, the increased caloric expenditure and, you know, the aerobic activity. Yeah, it's almost like it's still being used for the motivation factor behind it. Like, oh, it's fun. And if you're having troubles engaging in some other things you've tried in therapy, like if you have a Wii or something, or if you have someone younger and they use VR already, that could be a tool for motivation. Yeah. Which I kind of like, (laughs) that's where we were 10 years ago. Or like when I first started practicing and our rehab gym had a Wii, that's how I would use it. It's like a motivation thing. And it's almost like the technology has advanced some, but it hasn't spread that much. So we're still kind of there, like using it as a motivation tool for those. Yeah, I agree. It hasn't taken off like how I thought like, I, I love yeah. using, like, the even, like, the Connect, Microsoft Connect. And I remember thinking that, oh, this is going to be the new this way we're going to play games. And yeah, it, we haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't take off in a commercial sense. Yeah, I don't know So then it also why. didn't yeah. connect in rehab either. Yeah. For rehab-specific VR, how do you see that being used in OT currently? And what's the near future of that too. Yeah. Honestly, I think a lot about community reintegration. Yeah, I used to work at, at Walter Reed uh, National Military Medical Center. And, you know, one of the joys of that job was that, you know, whatever I felt the patient need, whatever they needed, I was able to do. And a lot of times that involved community reintegration. So I would take my clients to the grocery store, you know, we buy groceries, we come back and cook, take them on the metro, out of shop. You name it. But obviously, that's not practical, like in all, all settings. But I think a lot of times when we discharge our clients, we don't really understand how they're engaging in their community, you know, in this very highly variable setting. Like earlier, we spoke about the importance of variable practice across the different contexts. So I see like an area for VR or Pacific VR there. So I would love to see a Pacific VR with the targeted focus on like community reentry. So it could be a simulation of a grocery store. And, you know, now that we have this grocery store, now that we can work on visual scanning and visual attention to select the item that you want, we can work on, you know, reaching abilities so that you can actually grab the item 
We can even work on basic, you know, calculation or budgeting even on the very simple, you know, idea of just making sure that you're getting the items that you want within like this grocery budget, all in the VR environment. So I would love to see that to address that gap of the need to be able to assess community reintegration with our clients. Um, aside from that, I also see, again, a lot of utility in just the newer rehabilitation space, again, particularly going back to this idea of this block practice and variable practice, how can you really fine-tune movements? There are some products out there now in the more general you know, health tech space that focus a lot on mass practice, which I think is great. But a lot of times, if we only focus on that, and if we don't couple it with, again, this explicit and implicit feedback, then you're essentially mass practicing bad movement patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which, yes, can, yes. which can really lead to, you know, muscle oh. scale to injury and, uh, I mean, trigger points and all kinds of stuff, you name it. So I would love to see a Pacific VR within a rehab context evolve to the point where we are emphasizing this mass practice to really kind of lock down these quality movement patterns. But then let's not just have them do this movement over and over, but let's give them this on-time right. Real-time feedback. So if somebody's trying to reach to grab a cup, we're cueing them to say, okay, you know, great job. But hey, let's reduce this shoulder abduction that you have here. You know, maybe let's increase, you know, more of your elbow extension. And I think that can be done with the use of a virtual environment and coupling that with sensors. So movement sensors, which can be relatively affordable or cost-effective. Mm-hmm. Inertial measurement units are what they call like in the, the science world. But yeah, getting these inertial measurement units or these IMUs so that we can track these movements and then having the VR to give that encouragement and that feedback and that scaling of the challenge of the task. Let's combine those. And I think then we're really going to start seeing some uh, significant gains with our clients. I think that's, that's really important. Feels like the area we need to be watching is like, Maybe you'll know if this exists already, but refining your sports movements. Like I think about that for like your basketball shot. Is there something that helps kids refine that movement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like if we can do that for sports, we can do that for our rehab patients. And that feels like I can see that advancing quicker than in rehab. And that's where we'll pull from. Yeah. I think I heard you mention that that in another podcast episode. Yeah. 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 Yes. I, I fully agree. Yeah, I'm a podcast nerd. So there's like a podcast I used to listen to a lot and it focused on the data analytics in sports. And mm-hmm. often they talked about, you know, how they have these cameras all over the stadium and how they're measuring like every like, you know, millisecond of movement and how it's analyzed, like big data is analyzed and that can be used to inform, you know, how these players can improve their skill set. And I just said, well, wow, well. We should have something like that for yeah. A that's a person. huge. I'm like, if we yeah. can invest that much energy and technology into our sports teams, we can do that for someone who's had a stroke. Like, yeah. we yeah. just have not been focused to or or let them develop the technology and then we'll use it to help our stroke patients. Yeah, um, I would love to see that. Yep. I wanted to ask really quickly too about another very specific use that stood out to me as being really helpful, which is for driving, that driving simulation. I'm a nervous driver already, so if I had a spinal cord injury and was having to learn to drive in an adaptive, I would love to do that in a like virtually simulated 
environment oh, yeah. first. I know it exists because I've seen it in the research. Is that widely available? Like at Walter Reed, did they have that kind of thing? I don't know. Is that out yeah. there? Is that in your knowledge? Yeah, we do have like a, a driving a driver simulation. I didn't work with it too often, but I know that we did have one. But yeah, I would think something like that would be extremely beneficial. Just again, just thinking about the just the, the pragmatics and logistics of being able to actually take somebody out on the road. It can be hard. Uh, you may not have appropriate staffing, and obviously, like the safety of it. Obviously, you might not have a car that's available. You know, within your, like your your company or the hospital or center that you may work for, and but sometimes to prepare somebody for that moment when they're actually going out and driving. Yeah, I would see utility and having a virtual environment that simulates the driver experience um, to really, really help on, again, on visual attention and the reaction time, how you respond to unexpected circumstances, uh, the decision-making. I definitely see like a lot of value there. But I haven't seen, again, like a lot of products really addressing Really that. widely available. So that's, that's possibly a gap. Feels like every clinic should have some kind of simple driver simulator just to help with older adults too because driver safety comes up so much with older adults to have that be part of the assessment process for yeah but see this kind of goes back to my notion earlier and that i guess for vr to continue to evolve i see it as needing to have it's just my opinion but i see it as needing to have an external piece so at the end i think if we were to create this virtual driving environment it's also very important to simulate or recreate, you know, the resistance that you feel when you turn the wheel or the yeah. grip strength that you need to be able to change the gears or the, you know, ability to have shoulder flexion and shoulder extension to be able to change those gears. And I just would think that it might be more feasible to simulate that by producing an actual external device as opposed to trying to recreate that steering wheel in the VR environment. Feeling, yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about different technologies today and how they're probably all going to intertwine. And I think you've touched on this, but I wanted to talk really explicitly, just like, what do you see as having the most promise moving forward? What gets you the most excited about? What do you think we should be watching as therapists? I think the thing that probably makes me excited the most is the ability to track the track data. So again, pairing the VR with these wearables, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're measuring heart rate, whether you're measuring eye tracking or pupometry, which has been shown to indicate, you know, like levels of stress or anxiety that you may have. Yeah, I definitely see the, the pairing of the two. Again, like it's being really, really important. Why hasn't like Apple Watch or Fitbit or I can see that just being such a natural pairing with something and maybe this exists and I'm not aware of it. Why haven't we seen that yet? I don't know. I think it's I think it's definitely coming, but I don't mm-hmm. know if the utility of that technology is really being marketed to, you know, individuals that are living with various, you know, physical mental challenges that really benefit from the device or the software. That could be part of the issue. However, I think another big thing too, you know, before we can really scale VR and, you know, AR and all these cool technological advancements, one, I think therapists have to be able to communicate and train this technology in a very simplified and clear way. Because I do think there is this little bit of, I don't know if I want to say technological literacy, but a little bit of a technological challenges for different individuals, but they just might not understand basic functions, even 
the basic function of even swiping or, or pinching like on a touch screen, let alone being immersed in a, in a VR environment. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more, I guess, training that I think we need to do like as therapists just to kind of get individuals acclimated to engaging more with technology. Um, then also I think it's important to be able to communicate the effectiveness of the technology. And also, if you don't think it's beneficial for that particular client, as cool as VR or AR may sound, <laughs> it might not be yeah. good to use at this, uh, at this perfect moment. I mean, a funny story, slightly, yeah, it's on topic, but yeah, even one of my clients uh, a couple of days ago, <laughs> you know, I was trying to train her on how to use a home exercise program and I trained her on how to use the iPad and go into her client portal and fill out her homework. And I did all that work and she was just like, well, why do I want to do this when I can just print out my copy of my homework and then just look at it here on the table? And I was like, yeah. oh, well, there you have it. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, not, it's, not important. it's not important to you. Like, uh, yeah. And if I can duplicate this skill or if I can help you learn this skill, you know, in the real world environment, then sometimes it might not be worth trying to expose somebody to that VR environment. Not to say, again, that VR does not have utility. It has amazing utility. But I just think it's appropriate to assess where your client is with their technological awareness before we mm-hmm. push a technology on. Something on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's my final question. Is it a fatal flaw of VR to take us out of our real environments as OTs that's so important to us? Do you see that as problematic with VR? And is that why we should be focused on AR instead? I I see it as, I won't say, I don't know if I want to say problematic or a bad thing, but I see it as as time intensive and very cumbersome. Mm -hmm. Again, to, to recreate this entirely new like VR environment. And again, understanding that, you know, if you don't have, you know, high quality graphics or, the response time within this VR system, meaning that, you know, if you move your hand, then hopefully your hand in the VR system moves at the same time your hand moves. Like, we don't have, like, these things in place. Then, again, the person's not going to really engage, like, in the technology. It's going to cause elevated mental workload, so they're going to be concentrating very hard. And, I mean, it's not going to be a conducive environment for for learning. So I just think it brings, I think it brings forth challenges. I'm not going to say it's bad, but I think it brings forth some challenges. But... I do tend to think of, you know, a simpler solution or thing. And I think of AR again, whereas now we're not, we don't have to simulate this entirely new virtual environment, but now we just want to superimpose these few items onto this real world environment. So if our client that we're working with is very familiar with their kitchen, then let's not take that kitchen away from them and impose brand new VR kitchen. Like, let's keep that kitchen there but maybe less, you know, superimpose this cup or, you know, this this new item. Or maybe they don't have the stream to grab a frying pan in the real world environment. Well, let's superimpose this virtual frying pan in this AR environment. And now let's work on, you know, supination and pronation or, you know, grip stream for them grabbing that frying pan in that AR environment. I think that has a lot of benefit and it's easier to implement, I would think, from a technological perspective. Although I could be wrong because I'm not a software developer. But at the same time, we're as OT, we're keeping our clients engaged in that familiar environment that's very meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all this is just like, this is why I want OTs at 
all the major tech companies to, I think what you said at the beginning, I just keep coming back to this, like the simplest is the best. And there's simple things that we could all be doing to improve our population health. And I want Apple and Facebook and Google to be helping us in that. And I want to be like, maybe before the metaverse, before we invest billions there, we could do some of the low-hanging fruit first. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I want OTs there pushing us in that direction. Like, here's stuff we already know works and will nudge us in the right directions. Like, let's do that first. Like, we can still do the metaverse, but let's do the easy stuff first, the simple stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would love to do something like that. that yeah. That would be cool. That'd be awesome. I can't believe it. We're already towards the end of our time. I have a couple rapid fire questions for you, if you're up for it. Finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is? Essential to helping you enjoy life. Mm, love it. What's one moment you've had in therapy that you'll never forget? One moment I've had in therapy? Oh, I've had a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell all of them. I would probably, uh, let's see. Honestly, it was probably was before I was even a therapist. <laughs> this is why I was still was a tech and I didn't know anything about neuro rehab. I just was I just was trying to do things that I thought made sense. But I was working with the individual that had Parkinson's and he was very afraid to stand up and he had gravitational you know insecurity and he also had like a lot of anxiety around standing up. But I knew he liked jazz. So I would get him up, but then we would kind of do like a little shuffling dance. And we would kinda like would dance together like on, you know, on the rehab floor. And yeah, I just remember his smile. Oh man! I actually, I actually wrote a poem about him. That's how much like he impacted me. Wow. Um. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, essentially, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was you know introducing, you know, this idea like of rhythm or you know rhythm and the idea that movement has a cadence, and how when we establish this cadence, that can actually improve you know the movement quality. So I was kind of like deploying these principles of, you know, rehab and didn't even know it. But yeah, I'll never forget that. Dancing yeah. and therapy is the best. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? We've touched on so many things. What is the final thought and takeaway you want therapists to walk away from this episode with? Mm. One, just the value of ourselves as OTs. And I'm actually I have to tell myself this all the time. The value of how our knowledge of task analysis and adaptation and just understand the person how that has a stream value in the innovation of the world. But specifically, when I think about health tech, kind of like in line with what you're saying, we definitely have input to give to be able to improve the usability of these devices. So I think it's important for us, including myself, I have to tell myself this a lot, but understand how, you know, the language that we speak as OTs, how this language and how this information can be informative. And is this outside of the realm of rehab or, or even OT in a traditional sense? So that would be one thing. And then I think, too, I know sometimes with technology, you know, it's kind of like a give or take. But I would say that it's important to look at how we can embrace technology and use it when we think it can be beneficial. But then also I think it's important to, if we're going to expose our clients to a technology, uh, let's appropriately prepare them. Let's not just hit them with the yeah. <laughs> high tech out of this world. You know, you got to swipe right, swipe left stuff and they're going to get lost. And they're going to get upset. And let's let's really educate and, and break 
the technology down uh, in a simple way and teach step by step so that they can fully immerse in these new technological advances because the world has become more technologically advanced. And yeah, we are going to have to learn how to, to integrate it and use it. So yeah, we should teach mindfully, teach step by step. <laughs> well, Chris, I'm so thankful for this conversation. And I know my thinking was really stretched during it. And thank you for being here and the work you're doing. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Wow, this conversation really expanded my thinking on virtual reality and the possibilities it holds for our patients. In our show notes, I am going to link to the VR rehab companies that I know of. I feel like in our conversation, we tended to talk about future potentials for VR, but I do not want to downplay the exciting things that are happening right now in this space. For example, if you have not looked at the website of XR Health, I really, really encourage you to get online and do that. This is virtual reality that is delivered in the home and they do a good job spotlighting how you're still paired with a therapist. So I encourage you to look at that and the other companies. And of course, I hope you join us in the OT Potential Club. That is where you can go to generate a certificate for your time today. And that is also where we will be discussing this research and the conversation with Chris. These conversations on the podcast just make the topics come alive for me. But in addition to that, being able to hear from you and discuss things in our forums I know just sharpens my thinking and has expanded it on so many topics. So I'm thankful for the people that are in there and I really hope you consider joining us. And as always, just thank you so much for your time today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk to you next time.